What's up, slum gully lads and ladies? It's your old pal, the Storyteller, a.k.a. Indy McDaniel. Once upon a time, Jeff tried to ban me from being on the show because I bitch-slapped Rogue One in its face. But being buds with a couple of interdimensional stoners has its perks, so I'm back, baby. The story I'm pitching to you today is a bit longer than usual, but just as sweet. The sequel to Nadia's Knight's Road to Vengeance. It drops on February 14th, and I want to invite all of you to check it out. If you've not read the first one yet, don't freak out. It's totally available on Kindle and paperback. Nadia's Knight's All Mad Here picks up immediately where the first book left off and dumps Nadia into the biggest mess she's encountered so far. She knew the world was nearly as violent and pissed off as she was, but she's about to find out she's not seen anything yet. Nadia's Knights chronicles the ongoing adventures of Nadia Valentina. She's a badass, take-no-shit anti-heroine who has to fight her way through werewolves, vampires, blob monsters, and really anything else that gets in her way. We're talking fast-paced action, witty banter, colorful characters, and a whole slew of blood and guts. So if that sounds like your brand of poison, gear up and get in the fight alongside Nadia. Head over to NadiasKnights.com and sign up for the newsletter to get notified as soon as the book drops, as well as get a nice dose of other goodies. This year, February 14th, is Valentina's Day. Slum, slum, slum. Gullion, slum gullion, we've got season two of the slum gullion, Jeff and Scott's co-host of slum gullion, I still don't know what that word means, we still got some guests on the slum gullion, we're not showing breasts on the slum gullion, should probably fade. And welcome to the Slumgullion Season 2, Episode 2. I'm Scott. Yay. The guy yelling yay Yay. is Jeff. Yay. And today, I saw something that just piqued my peeves and all of their pets. And I'm, I'm probably getting too worked up about this but then if i wasn't the sort of person who had needlessly strong opinions about utterly inane things would i even be on a podcast no (laughs) so this just like so this like just happened this just happened i just saw this this morning um okay all right lay it on me big man i was having my coffee so francis ford coppola is launching a kickstarter Oh, I think I know what this is. Okay. Yeah. He wants to raise uh, an initial $900,000 to make a, quote, first-person RPG with survival and psychological horror elements out of yep. Apocalypse Now. Uh, yep. This is just the, the, the tender offer. This is just the first uh, initial uh, goal. They want to raise $5 million or more. Now... You may be asking, as I was asking myself, why doesn't Mr. Ford Coppola partner up with a deep-pocketed game publisher and start coining money? Because, and again, I quote from their Kickstarter page, in order to maintain the creative freedom and integrity that this daring and intense tale demands, the project is being financed outside the traditional video game publishing system. 
In other words, Coppola is still a weirdo control freak and has to be in autocratic control of his own little empire. This is, this, is, this is the same impulse that drove him to take his Godfather and Apocalypse Now money and build Zotrope Studios in San Francisco and put out such groundbreaking and enduring film fare as One from the Heart, Seven Minutes, <laughs> Seven minutes in Heaven, and Tough Guys Don't Dance. <laughs> Before said oh studio, God, I forgot about that. Yes, before said studio collapsed like a neutron star. Oh wait! Oh wait! Oh man, Jeff. There was one more. What? We have to do. Tough guys don't dance. We have to. Have you ever seen it? I've heard of it. Oh no, my God! I, I oh my have God! Not. Oh my God! This thing was. I wore out this video cassette. It was one of the first things I saw when I moved back from New York. Um, I know it was like nineteen eighty. The movie came out in. Uh, like 1987, I think it came out before. But when I moved back from New York, for some reason, we it, it, was, it was well, not for some reason, for obvious reasons, it was one of those things that was always available for rent at our local video store. That copy so was never guys, checked out. Hmm? Tough guys don't dance. Is this like a Patrick Swayze, Eddie Deason, no. buddy cop movie? No, no, it is a it is a neo noir written and directed by Norman Mailer from Norman Mailer's wow. own novel. And it stars Ryan O'Neill as the titular tough guy and Wings Hauser giving a batshit insane performance, even for Wings Hauser. Now, I... Wait, wait, wait. You're... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so you're saying that Wings Hauser outwings himself? Yes. Yes. Okay, I need to see this movie. Oh, oh, no, it's I need to see this movie. Here's a, Here's a quote. That's always stuck with me and that my, that my brother Miles would bring up whenever it was not appropriate. Your knife is in my dog. Wait, wait. Okay. Tension, I need this, ten, yeah. Tension pause. Your knife is in my dog. See, it builds. It builds. Really builds tension that way. Um, this... <laughs> movie I can't, okay I, yeah I, I, i'll hunt it down we I'll watched hunt it, down. it we watched it over and over again I, I can't believe i haven't even thought about this movie since that um i, ca I can't say what the plot is because it's 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 ridiculous and i barely remember it but it's it's really it's the style and the feel of the movie that earns its place in infamy it, i'll just i'll just say this it's it's a stinky stew made from Moldy machismo, machismo tropes and semen encrusted sweat socks, all left to simmer on the stove overnight. Ooh, that sounds like a Food Network show. Yay! All righty then. <laughs> well, that is actual. Okay, yeah, I will. I will definitely hunt that down. Then, then we need to discuss it. And that is actually a a, a very uh, good segue because I want to throw out to the listening audience what we got cooked. Oh wait, wait! Before we get to that, though, two, I, yeah. I didn't get to the heart yeah. of my complaint. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought just the fact that he was doing this was... Go well, ahead. it's outrageous. I mean, I, I, yes, on its face, it's it's uh, it's annoying enough. But I, I feel like I should explain um, the, 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 the source of my peeve, or, or, or at least make yes. my case. I, I think my objection is not, that, is not that Francis Ford Coppola is doing, making a game out of Apocalypse Now. You know, 
enjoy your subsidiary rights money dude you know let, let let the tributary flow into the great river of gold that's fine but i think his going this route is an abuse of the kickstarter system which i think call me old school i think exists to fund projects that have um fan but not necessarily venture capital appeal um you know let Coppola is the name. Let him kiss the ass of some Chinese production company to pay his startup costs. The artists with visions for unique or bold or risk-taking indie films or or truly revolutionary uh, video games, those people can't get in those rooms. They can't get within kissing distance of those venture capital asses. So what what the hell? Are you just too late? Why is he going this route? I, mean, I don't know. It just yeah, seemed, I have to say it sucks up I energy and money. You're saying no. I have to say I was actually kind of cool with the idea of a um, of an apocalypse now game. One of the things that he supposedly or that they want to do with this is, you know, you'll get to make your own choices, and that will of course affect how the how the story plays out. So you'll be creating your own version of the story. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And th- th- there was a comment from Coppola saying that, you know, he's watched video games develop as a medium for storytelling, and he thinks now's the time that to do it in this medium. I'm like, all right, that's kind of cool. But yeah, as soon as I heard there was a Kickstarter fund, I said, fuck you, I'm done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I... I- I, I, I suppose I'm leaving myself open to to charges of hypocrisy because uh, I'm declaring this thing stupid and anathema, whereas I gave money to um, the Kickstarters for both um, Veronica Mars and uh, the Veronica Mars movie and and uh, to bring back Mystery Science Theater as a series and and you you know granted. Uh, you you can't say th- those were also unfair uses of the system because they were both established commercial properties um they reach on tv and they should be able to go back and get money from studios and networks but but i don't well veronica mars veronica mars i'm that one i'm a little i'm kind of iffy on i was cool with them doing it mystery science theater i'm totally cool because that show's always been on the fringe and kickstarter should be fringe so i'm cool with it okay very good i i agree um my my, yeah and, and what tipped me over, I mean, I wouldn't have given either one, but but the original creators, uh, Rob Thomas for Veronica Mars and Joel Hodgson, respectively, were were um, were in charge of the resurrections of, of yep. the of the films of the uh, series and the and the and. But I don't know. I mean, he wanted to make a film, and Warner Brothers says, "Oh, if you can raise the money and shoot it uh, and deliver it to us, we'll release it." So it's like, oh, it's okay. I mean, that to me was the sort of nebulous gray area. But the people people wanted to see it. I mean, it was until Mystery Science Theater, it was the most successful Kickstarter. People just opened their wallet. So I don't object to that. I just this thing, game production, just seems like it's a different thing. There, there is, there is a there is. If you want to know about the evils of game production in an entertaining way, I highly suggest watching some of the YouTube videos of a man named Jim Sterling. Jim Sterling. Okay. Right. Yeah, he's a Brit. He's living in America. Um, he would not get this at all, but you will. He is the Mike and Ike of video game critics. Oh, okay. 
And um, he is also hated by several people in the video game industry because of his opinions, which kind of, which, which, oh, oh, speaking of which, I did find out one real quick side tangent, but this makes, this is hysterical. Um, I am in fact on a, on a Disney hate list. You are? Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I, I assume am. that doesn't, I assume I that means know. that. It's like a, it's like Nixon's enemies list maintained by Disney. Not that you are on a list of people who hate Disney. No, no. Well, well, well. No, 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 no. I am. Uh, yes, exactly. Apparently, the uh, the, uh, the 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 Disney rant that um, we did on a on a on a certain Mike and Ike show got into somebody's ears. Oh, it makes me so happy. Now, oh, I haven't even told. Oh, guys, let's tell Walter that he's gonna—he's he's gonna giggle. Yeah. Oh, we should. I wonder if we should just like excerpt that that rant and replay it here on the show, just so people, people appreciate it. <laughs> Hit me up on the Twitter or the Facebook because I have found a digital copy of "Don't uh, Punch Me in the Face." I just bought new boobs. Did you really? Yeah, I found it. It's there. I listened to it the other night. Oh my God, it's really funny. Oh, well, I, I want to hear it. It's 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 genuinely funny. And by the way, there is a special guest appearance by um, our next special guest, Dave Probert. Ah, excellent. How's that for a segue? That's you know what? That's that's high segue quality. That's the kind of seg- yeah. that's the kind of segues you get you get only from a professional. Um, but for well, those of you who do not know, real well, fast. For those of you who do not know, don't uh, punch me in the face. I just bought new boobs. It was an incredibly low budget uh, um, digital album that I put together with both new and old Mike and Ike pieces. And so there were there are several um, guest appearances from a variety of people. Um, Dave Probert, who will be on our next episode, discussing, by the way, the Jean Claude Van Damme film pound of flesh bum 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 did the voice of an undead Cary Grant impersonator yeah can we put this can we put this up on the website make it available to people <laughs> uh, that, I, that, that, that could be arranged okay check you've the website you've never heard the album what no you've I, never heard it I never heard it Oh yeah, no, dude. We put it together. It, it was one of our. It was one of our um, uh, Geek Planet Online. Hey, give us a little bit of money. Here's a free thing for you. Oh, that's probably what it. Our version of a PBS pledge drive. Oh, well. And it has um, a couple of. It has one whole um, podcast. It has the one, um, of course, with the Serbian film song sung to the tune of Do Re Mi from Sound of Music. <laughs> Yes, and then it has a lot of um, individual like song parodies and comedy pieces and bits from other people. Dave and Brandy are on it. Ah, excellent. Yes, yes, Dave and Brandy, formerly of Geek Planet Online as well. Um, but uh, but yes, we have uh, Dave Probert plays an undead Cary Grant impersonator and a fine undead Cary Grant impersonator too, I might add. And he actually gives the the canon backstory of Mike and Ike. Well, it's about time. <laughs> People are confused. But 
Yes, but anyway, but yeah, if, if you folks are interested, we might we, we 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 might put this up on the site because I, I guess I listened to it the other night, and it's the first time I've listened to a lot of this stuff in a long time, and um, it's really funny. It is really funny. Everybody who contributed wrote some really really funny stuff. It just it's fun. And right, well, plus, there is a song. There's a song parody that has not been played anywhere else. Ah, so so if you guys are interested, drop a. A uh, comment uh, under this uh, on the website under this uh, the, under this show, and we'll see if we can't uh, make that available. Give you give you a a movie themed comedy album, oh joy! But anyway, that is that is the next episode. Will be as I said, um, Mr. Monsieur Probert will be joining us, and then after that, uh, Scott and I have just come up with a winner. <laughs> Um, we're telling you this one in advance because uh, people might want to get involved in this one. I don't know. What do you think, Scott? Oh, this, yeah, this de- de- definitely has uh, popular appeal. Who wouldn't want to be part of so, this movement? So we are we are going to settle in two weeks' time. Well, actually, no, in a month's time, yeah. we are going to be settling a debate. Who is the most racist Asian stereotype detective of the 1930s. We have three combatants. We have Charlie Chan. We have Mr. Moto. And we have Mr. Wong. Competing studios all doing the same damn thing. How did they do? Who was the best? Who was the worst? We will decide. We will decide who's the best. We will decide who's the worst. If you guys want to play along, the three movies we will be watching are from 1939, Charlie Chan at Treasure Island, The Mystery of Mr. Wong, and Mr. Moto in Danger Island. All from 1939. We, we picked that because it's, it's, it's uh, widely considered the best year in movies. We're going to disprove that. Especially with Charlie Chan, because he had uh, because Fox released three Chan films in 1939. But we're going with Treasure Island just so we can mock uh, Peter Lorre for Mr. Moto and Danger Island. But all three of these films are available on YouTube. They are there for free, so please go watch. Um, like I said, you've got we've got a full month. We'll let you know when we're taping, but get watching now and join the conversation. Let us know who you think is the most racist Asian detective in films in the 1930s. Right. If you do see them, send us an email or leave a comment on the website, and we will we will read your contribution uh, on the show. And just consider it like this: you've seen those. Um, magazine pieces or website pieces where two celebrities have similar uh, red carpet gowns and it's always who wore it better well in this case it's it's we have three competitors and it's who racist better all right moving on uh oh i know i have one last thing to say yes sir uh i just figured out it just popped into my head why the francis ford coppola thing pisses me off so much and then i will be done with it um, okay. Uh, yeah, because like I mentioned, Rob Thomas, uh, Veronica Mars, Joel Hodgson, Mystery Science Theater. Uh, that was seemed, the, the original artist, and it seemed like a legitimate artistic endeavor. Like they really wanted to make these shows or tell these stories, and that made it less of a cash grab. I I cannot imagine Francis Ford Coppola playing a video game. Just can't see him <laughs> as a hardcore gamer sitting there on the couch. 
you know, with Pokemon Go, man. Hmm? Pokemon Go. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Okay, probably not. Hmm. I just can't see him. I mean, I can see him sitting on the couch. I just can't see him getting off the couch for that. But you know what? He's done some good work. Let's leave. Let's leave it at that. Okay. So no, you have a you have a very like I said, you have a very valid point. I mean, I love the idea of the game, but I hate that he went to a Kickstarter. I I, I you have I, I completely agree with you on that. Like I said a part of me automatically now wants the game to fail as much as I want it just because he went to fucking Kickstarter. I know. And the thing was, when I read the description of the game, I I would have been interested. I might actually have played yeah. it if they if they hadn't been going the Kickstarter route because they're just I just there's too many. Big media companies, too many big names, too many big properties, just sucking all the 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 money and the atmosphere out of out of creative development now, and and it's just it's just more of this vertical integration and and monopolization, and I just let a thousand you know flowers bloom. Just you guys stay in your corporate lane and let other people use um, direct popular financing to get their projects in front of fans it's just ah. all right anyway so um, i'm i'm with you on this one scott i am with you on this one okay. i am all right I'm glad it's not just so me. hey Topola, i love you you've made some good movies but right now fuck you exactly there you go okay um speaking of someone uh who's made some movies and uh inspired me to say fuck you uh, <laughs> I knew this was coming. Okay, I want to point out. I want to point out. Um, I was about seventy percent sure you weren't going to like this film going into it. I didn't say I didn't like it. I didn't say that. I'm, I'm not... just saying right now. I'm. I, I, I'm just saying before we, we. We. Scott and I have not discussed this at all. Um, I'll, I'm just saying going into it when I heard that you would finally see it, I was about seventy percent sure that you weren't going to like it. Okay. All right. But anyway, there's, there's your prediction. Let us let us talk about it and see how close you came to the mark. Uh, Jeff called me after having seen uh, M. Night Shyamalan's latest film, Split. And now, real fast, real fast, before before to to go into what how I describe it to you, I need to explain. I went into this movie. A when I went in, I honestly didn't know it was a Shyamalan movie at first. I didn't know it was a Shyamalan movie until you told me. I all I knew yeah, was exactly. I had seen a, I had seen a trailer that made it look like the worst piece of crap ever committed to celluloid. Which now that I think about it, should have told me it was a Shyamalan film, but I didn't make the connection. <laughs> I'm sorry, this film is still more entertaining than Lady in the Water. Um, but no, I I had no I, I had no idea what this was. I just knew it was multiple personalities, and I wanted to see James McAvoy act. Act, and so I went in with with no expectations whatsoever, not knowing anything about it. And I called Scott amazingly surprised because for a Shyamalan film, I was invested; it engrossed me. And then there was the ending, mm-hmm. and I was genuinely surprised by the ending. And for a variety of reasons, which I can finally talk about now. I really like um, that particular ending. So I called Scott and Scott was saying, my God, that trailer made it look terrible. And I said, okay, yeah, but dude, I really, really was surprised by this thing. Does it have faults? Yes. But for me, once again, the good far outweighed the bad on this puppy. I was very, very surprised by how much I liked it. And in my favor, I have to looking at reviews after I saw it. I'm amazed at how many people have been saying this is much better than we thought it was going to be. 
yes, yes. Um, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna warn everybody now. If you do want to see it, you may want to jump ahead to the to the uh, to the bi boner movie section. section. Yeah. Or, oh yeah, yeah. The middle section. Yeah. Because um, we're gonna spoil it. We're gonna spoil the fuck out of this thing. Mainly, um, mainly pig because fucker, the word has been said. Yes. Uh, mainly we're spoiling it because uh, I was. Jeff said. Jeff said. I said. Do you think I? Do you really think I need to go see it? And he and he said, "Rent it. You should see it, but you don't have to run out and see it." Yeah, I know how you feel about this. So, and, and so I was going to rent it, and then I read something that and he he refused. He was good. He refused to spoil it for me when we talked. Then I read something online that said, "Oh, I wasn't going to see this until somebody spoiled it for me," and I thought, "Oh, well, spoil it for me, and let's see if it has the same effect." And it did. So we're going to spoil it for you as well so please i just want to i just so just so everyone is on board with this i did not spoil this he spoiled himself exactly i didn't uh, say soiled i said spoiled I, yeah it wasn't that good of a twist no uh so yeah let me just let me talk a little bit about how um I hated the trailer and why I think the trailer is it, it does a, a, an amazingly criminal disservice to this movie. I mean, this is probably uh, the worst bit of marketing since. Um, I don't know. I think the John Carter trailers were all just I did not say that, but I'm glad you. I did not say that to you, but I am glad you realize that trailer does nothing to what the film actually is. No, no, not at all. What it does, it looks like it, it looks like a movie made by by somebody who saw uh, a made for TV movie about multiple personality disorders and thought that they could make a, a, a horror movie uh, about that rather than something that was, you know, uh, uplifting and lifetimey and, <laughs> but decided, be, Oh, well people we got to make a superheroes a big. So uh, you've got Betty Buckley's uh, psychologist or psychiatrist saying, these people can literally change their body chemistry their personality and you go really no that's and then you see like a shot of of james mcavoy crawling on the wall like spider-man and you think okay i'm done i'm couldn't be more done um and yet when you find out why she says that and the context of the wall crawling uh it's a lot of fun so screw you marketing department yes no no i i generally like the movie um cool I, I stand corrected that's freaking awesome now if anybody if any of you follow me on twitter you may have seen this um i saw it in a movie i saw it in a completely empty theater except for myself <laughs> so it's not like i got swept up in the enthusiasm of the audience and uh see now when I, okay. peer, peer pressure when I did not prevent it. me from forming my own opinions i'll put it that way <laughs> okay so all right so um when i saw it i saw it actually i had the exact opposite reaction because a i did not know the big twist and b i saw it in a full theater okay mm-hmm. so we're sitting in the theater and now i gotta say when it got to the the wall crawling and it got to the whole beast sequence, you know, I was a little like, really, we're going here? Mm-hmm. This is Shyamalan. Okay, I'm enjoying it so far. Well, let's see where it goes. Let's see where it goes. And then it cuts to the diner and people started losing their shit as soon as the music started. I did not know that was the unbreakable music. I didn't either. 
No, that is the uh, that is the unbreakable theme. So people started losing their shit immediately, and I was I'm sitting there going, what 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 what's going on? And then of course we have the moments. Fucking Bruce Willis. Is David Dunn from Unbreakable. Find, and we find out this is officially Unbreakable 2. Yes, except it, it, Unbreakable was a uh, superhero origin story. This is a villain origin story. Yes. And he is, by the way, Shyamalan is now officially calling this Unbreakable 2 in his mind. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, and he's now he's doing press. He's officially saying, and he's also saying that what he wants to do is he wants to do the same thing with the third film. Although I don't know how he's going to do it because I mean the way this thing is set up, we want to Bruce Willis to go after the Beast. We do, and well, after the Horde, as because that that's that's the, oh, yeah, the, the media winds up calling this this um, the serial killer with. Um, uh, called did uh something yeah identity oh disassociative identity disassociative, thank you dissociative identity disorder um uh, they're calling him the horde and yeah the, you, exactly exactly you want him you you want him to to hunt him down and now, see some kind of country but here's the thing about this i when i know exactly how you feel when you got to that point and the 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 supernatural or or uh, extra normal stuff start happening and up to then it had just been for the most part, psychological horror. I can see where you're going, oh man, why is it doing this? Um, but the thing about, you know how sometimes the, the good Shyamalan movies are better the second time you see them because you get to see how he did it? Like, yes. I, I like The Sixth Sense, but I really liked The Sixth Sense the second time I watched it and saw how fair he played with the audience and yes. how, how the clues were were all in plain sight. Um. When seeing this, having had it spoiled, watching how it was ramping up from, you know, the, what it looks like a, like a low budget set in a basement psychological horror story to something that is a supervillain origin story. Um, I, I did. I didn't have that moment where I thought, oh, don't go there. Now, I would have had that moment had I not had it spoiled. In fact, I would have been very right, disgusted with right. that film. I would have been rolling my eyes into the back of my head at that point. But, but, see, I mean, I, I was I was rolling, but I was like, like, like I said, for the first time in a long your time, eyes, I, but you were like, rolling with it. Yeah, I'm like, all right, I've liked everything else for the first time in a long time. You're giving me a really good movie here. So, OK, I'm going to forgive you this because I, I mean, it was Ma McAvoy kept me interested the entire time. I mean, every moment that man is on screen. And I mentioned this to Scott when I was talking to him about it. Um you know, this to me, this does not feel like the quote unquote Oscar bait performance. This is a guy doing a really good job in a horror film. Yeah, I, I noticed thinking back on it um, for a creepy movie set in um, locked basement rooms and subterranean corridors and, uh, uh, you know, crawl spaces full of pipes. It's uh, remarkably not claustrophobic and. I think it's because it's also remarkably well lit for the most part. Yes. And you think that in, in a film like this, generally they would play up the creepiness. There would be a lot of shadows, a lot of bad lighting. But it seemed like Shyamalan in, the, in this, I, I got that sense, not just from the lighting scheme, but from his his heavy use of um, close-ups, that he wanted, to, he wanted you to catch every single 
nuanced expression on James McAvoy's face because it was a pretty entertaining uh, display in and of itself. But also, I mean, come they, on, like when he's one personality pretending to be another personality. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also that the, his his facial expressions were not just weren't just ticks. They were plot points because the slightest expression could mean could tra- could signal a transition into another personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and often did. So it wasn't that's what that's why it didn't feel like an Oscar bait performance, because it wasn't just indulgent acting. It was it was a lot of information being conveyed on a lot of different levels, and like like you say that when they're there several times, personalities that that don't want the psychologist to know they have taken control of the collective uh, are try are pretending to be the 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 one normal guy that she treats and has gotten a job, um, and they're you know and and she's sort of seen through them, and you can see it's like it's a weird scene. A personality pretending to be a personality, trying to just sort of collapsing and <laughs> the the one thing that I have that I really really want to give this film credit for. Well, a who and people have seen this film for had started seeing this film a month or so before it came out, and the fact that they kept that secret for so long, good for them. Well, you know what? There's never a hard. There's never a hard time. I've noticed. Um, keeping uh, a secret or or maintaining the integrity of a spoiler if people like the movie if it's a piece of shit people will go out and they will trumpet whatever it was that yeah. the filmmakers wanted to keep secret but if there's goodwill like for instance um uh i have a friend who who's uh got into who got into the um uh the uh, la screen the la premiere screening and the after party of uh, the mystery science or mystery science theater, the the new show, and um, oh, he's known that for, he's known the date for a while, and he and I'm sure several hundred other people, uh, and they said, please don't, you know, we're, we're emailing everybody, but please don't release this, please don't mention it on online because we, you know, uh, we don't want to keep a secret or whatever their reasons were, and nobody did. I, I didn't find out about it until they sent out that the, they they themselves sent out an email, so. If you like the show, if you like the movie, know. if you like the the people involved, um, you, you and also the thing about spoilers, if you enjoyed it, you want people to have the same experience you did. Now we're not doing that; we're spoiling the fuck out of it, so we are ruining any chance you have of, of experiencing it the way Jeff did. But no, not at all. But we hey, we said pig fucker, so people we know we did. So I mean, we 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 said ahead, and I'll make sure there's plenty of spoiler, spoiler, spoiler in the beginning. So people, I mean, well now you now you know how I felt talking to you after I saw it that night. You were you were audibly biting your tongue. You, you I mean, that was so wanted hard to, to say. I mean, that's why as I was walking out of the theater, I mean, that's what I was. I was just like, okay, that wasn't technically a your dead twist, but it just, what kind of film was I watching? Yeah. So what psychological horror film? It's actually a super villain. Fuck you, Shyamalan. You got me. Yeah. And you know what? That's actually a really good point because unlike most of the Shyamalan twists in this film, uh, I mean, I mean, they're all, the twists are, uh, in this film, it's a payoff, but it's not a payoff to the story you've just been watching. It's it's like a it's like a delayed payoff. It's like a delayed fuse payoff to his last good movie, which I think was Unbreakable. Huh. Um, 
and and the the twist knowing the twist does not change what happens in the story itself um no it's it's sort of i mean it, really if you if you find out the twist and you go see the story it's really it's just like watching the movie thinking it was set in fresno and then finding out at the very end no it was actually set in modesto it's not you know it's not that big a deal you can still enjoy it on twist levels yeah you're right but come on finding that like the people who see in that opening weekend especially if they're Shyamalan freaks they lost their shit oh oh like yeah, I I'm said sure. I'm, the people that I was seeing it with as soon as that music started I mean I had to ask like I said the person that I saw it with got it and you know I looked over at him and his jaw was dropped and I'm like what he's like he literally put his finger in my face he's like shut up like because I had shown Bruce Willis what what's going on and then Willis leaned in and mentioned glass and that was and I mean it did it took me a second to realize what had just happened I mean I knew what had just happened obviously but to connect it to the movie if that makes sense the Mm -hmm. connection to the movie that I just watched it took me a second to realize wait a minute this did just happen yeah yeah and and, I mean you could tell Shyamalan was was really hedging his bets because most people who know and like his work, uh, actually, that that's on the Venn diagram. That's not a big group. There are people who know his work. There are people who like his work. There's a percentage that know and like his work. Um, they most people would recognize Bruce Willis as having, you know, oh yeah, of course he's been in he's been in a couple of his movies. But he he went out he went out of his way. He he's wearing a uniform with a name patch yep. on it that says done i guess so we don't think oh look it's the dead psychiatrist who, uh, from, <laughs> who who's for some reason drinking <laughs> coffee at a diner and and uh has gotten a job as a custodian i i was it just I, i'm so glad i'm so glad you enjoyed it this makes me happy i did t- you know i t- to my sur- I, well not to my surprise actually because i once i knew what it was i thought oh I bet I'm hating it for all the wrong reasons. Let me go see it so I can hate it for the right reasons. And it didn't really give me any reasons to hate it. I, I, so you were hating it for the wrong reasons. Uh, I was hating. Yeah, exactly. I, I wound, wound up. I just hated the, the trailer. Um, I will say this. <laughs> I will say this. Um, there were things about it that really annoyed me that, that weren't twists, but I, I realized we're done for a reason. One of them is the uncle. Yes, the the uncle. I mean, I I understand why he did it, and, and and it does pay off. But man, that was hard to get through. The 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 pervy uncle was just ah, it just yeah, was, yeah. That, that was that, that was, was that was that was the one part of the film where I'm going. All right, we're we're, we're cut, you're losing me here. You're cut, starting yeah. to lose me. You're losing me exactly. Cut cut away, and 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 then it it it, it happened a, a couple of times to the point where I thought, okay. Just once, it's it might be bad taste, bad judgment. Twice, this better fucking pay off. There better right. be there better be a reason for this. Um, uh, also, uh, one of the personalities, one of the dominant personalities, Dennis, uh, that McAvoy plays, <laughs> likes to see likes to see girls dance naked. And it starts off the, when it, when he he's take he kidnaps the girls. I mean, everyone who's seen the trailer knows that he kidnaps the girls. He pulls one out. And you think, uh, okay, ordinarily, if this were a certain type of film, this would get rapey here. I, I'm pretty sure it's not going to. I don't know why I have any confidence it's not going to. It just seems like Shyamalan is such a nerd that he wouldn't be comfortable doing that. Um, when you really you look at any 
Shyamalan films, he 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 seems completely uncomfortable with sexuality of any kind. Uh, so, Agreed. So I didn't. Although although the 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 creepy uh, pervy molesty uh, uncle certainly rang true. So maybe anyway, I don't want to make a. I don't make any decisions one way or the other, but I'll just say that I was pretty convinced it wasn't going to go where you thought it was going to go. And it didn't, but he, he does make the girl, the, 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 the guy who likes to watch girls dance naked shares headspace with a guy who's OCD. So whenever they get any dirt on them, they have to take off that dirty article of clothing. So you've got one girl who's wearing just pants and a bra, one girl who's wearing a top, but had to doff her pants and she's running around in her panties and then we've got our heroine, I guess, uh, Casey, who uh, he keeps telling her to take off her shirt or various articles of clothing, and she only gets less nude. Um, it's like every time she takes a bit, she's got another layer of clothing underneath it. She's like a clothing matryoshka doll. And <laughs> I just and I just thought, wow, this actress has a really good agent and a very and an ironclad no no nudity no no skin writer in her contract and it turns out that's not the case at all that when she finally when her shirt gets ripped at the end and it's you know it's not just uh, eye candy that's it's kind of gross and there's a reason for it that yeah that has been planted all through the movie and and then does pay off and it's part of the reason she survives uh i thought okay this annoyed me this took me out of the movie this made me think of just backstage wrangling and 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 behind the scenes stuff but it actually was a story choice so i give him that even something that annoyed me turned out i to be something i had misjudged um Mm -hmm. so i gotta give it to i will say this about the girl the the casey and i i don't know if he, he i guess he cast her maybe he cast her for this reason but her eyes, the actress's eyes, are so big and so wide set that it was kind of like watching a horror movie starring a Walter Keene painting. <laughs> and by the way, he had not seen The Witch when he cast her. See, that seems like malfeasance. Why? Why did? Why would he not have seen that before casting her? He just cast he her. Just, he, 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 he just hadn't seen it. He cast her as, you know, just on the basis of her own talent. And it was only while they were filming the movie, I found this out it was during an interview with the two of them, that um, they they watched it together. They watched it together? Well, yeah, during the ma- during the making of um, Split, they watched it. That's, that's weird, because that seems like something that he would have seen just as, as a matter of course. But uh, did, did you see it? The Witch? Yes, I did. What did you think of it? Um, I'm the wrong person to ask. Why is that? I was bored senseless. Were you? Okay. I did not care. I was bored. If if I may quote Monty Python, it was dull, 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 just mind-bendingly dull and just so dull. People are going to yell at me about that, but I don't give a fuck. I was bored senseless by that movie. Well, there's a lot of crying and praying and people in the forest and i mean i can see that that's i i don't i don't think the movie i mean it looked it looks time period appropriate i Mm -hmm. gave it that i just i just didn't care i just didn't care and you know for a while there i felt like i was a bad horror fan and then i thought you know what no most horror fans kept friday the 13th going for over for 10 films fuck you fair enough Fair enough. Um, 
the uh, the casting was was good though. I mean, uh, Casey Casey is the most traumatized of all the characters, and and her her, her backstory um, gives gives good cause for that. Um, and yes, I think and I part, am very happy to. I, I think part of the reason he cast this this actress with these huge expressive eyes that are almost just so big, almost so exaggerated, they're distracting, was because Casey herself. Um, does not have a lot of lines, um, mm-hmm. and that a lot of what she do, you see in those eyes when things are happening, you think, oh, she's paralyzed by fear. What she's doing, she's going through the whole victim uh, uh, survival checklist of, you know, how inconspicuous can I be? How agreeable can I be? How you know? So that you can see things going on in her eyes. You can see her not paralyzed by fear, but thinking furiously. Um, while being paralyzed by fear, and then you've got the other, you got the you know the the the, the black girl in the middle who's who's sort of like wants to get out but doesn't, but but is kind of going. And then you've got the 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 blonde girl who's the the, the take charge uh, uh, cheerleader type who's you know we've got to get a plan, we've got to get out of here, we've all got to attack him, um, who's not at all prepared for what this guy is. I mean, the, the the Casey seems the most passive, and yet she she's the one who survives. Because she has, she takes this guy's measure very early on, and and knows that you know what what gestures are futile. Um, I'll just mention that the uh, I think her name is Haley Lou Richardson. Man, I should have looked this up. Um, uh, the girl who plays the the uh, the blonde girl, um, who's the uh, uh, like I say, sort of the the leader of the group. Um, she, I've seen her in one other movie. She was in. She played uh, Haley Steinfeld's uh, too good to be true friend in uh, uh, Edge of Seventeen, and Ooh. she was very very good in that. She uh, um, she was very believable as somebody who's like 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 a very very normal girl could be very popular if she wasn't friends with this weirdo, and yet they've been friends forever. So she's you know is committed to her. Um, so I was happy to see her in this. Okay. One good actor. I mean, generally Shyamalan casts good people in his films. He's either got an eye for, for acting talent or he's got a good casting director. I don't know which he's, he's also responsible for some shitty direction that he's given them, but, um, not in this film. And some shitty dialogue and some shitty dialogue. Yep. Let us. I mean, I will throw out one more time. The Lady in the Water is one of the worst scripts I think I have ever seen produced. And I know I've written some shitty dialogue, and that was horrible. Well, this you speak from experience, so that's that. That only that only makes your um, your judgment more credible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think he got away with it. I mean, I mean, it's it's a low low budget film. It's I think it's like not nine million dollars. Uh, it's making it's making a surprising amount of money. Uh, my my experience of seeing it in a empty theater apparently is not typical. It's it's ha- it had a very good opening weekend, um, but it's uh, it, I think he's this is how he needs to this is how he needs to come back. He needs he he doesn't need and to make we need he doesn't need to make movies like Avatar because he's got no he needs to make that. movies like this. Yes, he needs to make or he can be focused. Movies. We can be focused on story. Uh, exactly, and and the dialogue isn't great. 
I'll, I'll just say that there, there, there's not a single line in it that I thought was particularly evocative or, or revelatory. But it wasn't Lady in the Water, man. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, it, it wasn't tinny. It wasn't clanging. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was just movie dialogue. It moved the story along. It did what it needed to do. Um, that's that's not where his gift lies, certainly. Also, I wish he would stop appearing in cameos. Because... But at least this one, at least this was a cameo and not like Lady in the Water where he was a major character. Yes, exactly, because that's unconscionable. He's not a good actor. You know, if 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 you're going to do that, just pull a Hitchcock appear in it, you know, just do a visual cameo or do what Peter Jackson does. Don't give yourself lines. Please. At least yeah, at least he's in like one brief scene. Um I have no problem with directors appearing in other people's movies, even if they can't act, because at least it's the other people going, hey, come in here and act. Yeah, and sometimes you get... Don't you, put yourself in your own movies unless you're Kenneth Braun on, you're actually good. Right, and sometimes you get actors, or you get directors who started as actors and and are pretty good. Uh, like, um, I'm sorry, Martin Scorsese is one of the best parts of that stupid fucking fish tale, whatever that movie was. Shark's Tale. Oh, was he in? Oh, I didn't, never saw it. Um, the one with Will Smith? Yeah, yeah. yeah Martin Scorsese. It. He plays a blowfish. He is actually the he is the best part of the movie. Okay. Uh, uh, Sidney Pollack in uh, Tootsie is yes. great. Yes. Very, very funny, very, very realistic. So, um, And they're both ten times better than Shyamalan. So stay in your lane, M. Night. Please. And definitely give us the next film because I want to see Dunn fight the Horde. Yeah, here's the thing. If this, this, this needs to happen now. You've set it up. You've, this fucking needs to happen. So people, if you haven't seen it yet and you're still listening to this, wow, and go see the goddamn movie. Exactly. And, and believe us, despite everything we've told you, we have not spoiled anything. Because the, 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 <laughs> this, is, this is the rare Shyamalan film where it's not building up to a big twist. It's building up to... to to things that are revealed, but those things are all, they all flow naturally from what happened in the story. There are small little mysteries that we have not touched on, but basically That's it's true. Kept... We really haven't, we really haven't spoiled a lot of the movie. No, no, we just, just the, the most obvious stuff that I think knowing going in makes the movie a richer experience to me. And, and, well, and, and he's not so. trying to, he's not trying to protect it because as, as you say, he's not is, anymore. He was in the beginning, but now that it's been out for a week or so, he's officially like you know dropping all pretense of the of the hiding it. Right. Well, I think part of it is because the reviews have all talked about how much that that fight. I wouldn't even call it a twist. That final reveal made the movie more enjoyable and made them more excited and to to see to see an unbreakable sequel. I mean, that's what I think. That's what this movie is for. I think it's to. It was a low budget. Uh, film to that hopefully if successful would generate um, uh, enough excitement and and financing to make a, an unbreakable sequel and and let's face it unbreakable itself was a pretty low budget movie it took place mostly in comic book shops and uh, their home and it wasn't there were no big set pieces the biggest the biggest fight he has is with like a pool toy. And one last little um, bit of interesting trivia before I get a boner with Mrs. C. Um, do you know when Unbreakable came out? Uh, Off the top of your head. Don't look it up. Okay, I won't look it up. But he, okay. They say in the movie, uh, uh, when they're, when they're um, 
when they're watching the TV in the diner and they say that, that the uh, medium has called, the media is calling the, him the horde. And some lady says, oh, that's like that guy from 15 years ago. They gave him a crazy name too. What was it? And then you see Bruce Willis' name. Mr. Glass. Mr. Glass. Um, well, no, but, but it wasn't, but it wasn't remember... 15 years ago. It was, it was more than 15 years ago. It was like seven, it was like 17 years ago. So it was like, do you remember 2000, what right? It was, film... was, it, was it 2000? The, the year, the year, honestly, I'm not sure of the year. The reason that I'm bringing this up is the film, a film came out earlier the same year that unbreakable came out the same year as X-Men. Oh, then that would have to be 2000. The year where the superhero boom, one could argue, officially started. Mm-hmm. Um, Shyamalan brought out his, for lack of a better word, grounded superhero film. And now that superheroes have, films have become their own, um, you know, cross media uni- shared universes, Shyamalan does it again. Jumps and the, the timing of this is actually perfect if you think about it. Uh yeah, true. I mean, they all they are all looking for people are they're looking for share universes to to promote and develop. Uh, and here's one that I'm and here's one that I'm actually interested in. Yes, yes, I am. I am not interested in any uh, shared universe that contains, um, say. Uh, 20th Century Fox's version of uh, Fantastic Four, um, but I am I am interested in this 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 gritty little this gritty little blue collar superhero universe. Go see it if you haven't seen it. It's a Slumgullion recommendation. We are back. With me is Mrs. C, and it's time for your bi-weekly boner. How do you do, Mrs. C? Uh, how do you do, Jeff? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, I am here. All righty. We have two more episodes to talk about this week. We have the new tricks in the old dogs and the price for the past. As I like to call the new tricks in the old dogs. Well, I had a joke and I just lost it. Damn it. I hate Amtrak mind moments. (laughs) I just got I just got a joke completely derailed. That sucks. All right. Was so it, was it something the I thought they were dead episode? <laughs> Along those lines, but I was <laughs> aiming for something else. No, on the new tricks in the old dogs yes. features one of my personal favorite cliches and murder mysteries: mm-hmm. uh, a murder in an old folks home. Yep, a sexy and old are, folks home. I'm sorry? A sexy old folks home because nobody expects old folks to be sexy. A sexy old folks home with both Lou Grant and Mark Twain. Yes. Who, again, I thought thought Hal Holbrook was dead. I really did. I did too. I I, I thought both of them were dead. I genuinely thought both of them were dead. (laughs) I saw their names in the credits and I'm like, wait, what what, is this Rogue One again? (laughs) Peter Cushing. (laughs) <laughs> but I do have to say, uh, while while it was surpri- while it was surprising and happy to know that they were still alive, mm-hmm. they both gave really good performances. It was a, that I think of the two episodes uh, that's the new tricks in the old dogs. That's my favorite one of the two. 
I think I enjoyed that more. Than I, I I do. I would I would actually agree with you on that. However, this episode does bring up an interesting point when it comes to um, television procedurals. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to run this by you and see if you think that this is an actual thing, and if you do, if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Okay. Theory. Okay. When you see special guest stars that are big names mm-hmm. in murder mystery programs, oh. nine times out of ten, they are the killer. Oh, I agree with that completely. That's true. That's I, It was either Ed or Mark. And, uh, you, and it yeah, was. And as, soon as, <laughs> as soon as we found out the... As soon as we found out that Lou Grant was the horny old man, and they they always interview another trope. They always interview the red herring first. That's well, yeah, absolutely. They interview a ton of people, and sometimes you go back to the red herring. That's not really a red herring. I've had that happen, but yeah, that that indeed that indeed has happened. Now the reason why the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Bones is one of the few shows and it has been for quite some time that I thoroughly enjoy trying to outthink. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But this one was pretty Normally easy. Yes, yes it was. Especially since once we knew that Lou Grant, once we knew that Lou Grant was just the horny old man. It's like, "Oh, well, Mark Twain's the killer. That's all there is to it." I knew Mark Twain was the killer when, as soon because Booth was like enamored of him, and then was like, "I need an extra set of eyes." So I was like, "Whoop, he did it." <laughs> See, there's the other trope, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing because every show does this. Um, Law and Order SVU does the exact same thing. Yeah, it's true. Whenever they. Whenever they bring in, you know, like mentors to the main characters or good friends to the main characters, they are either victims or uh, perpetrators. Right. It's true. They did it on Castle a couple of times. So, yeah. Uh, There you go. There you go. My (laughs) God. Between Columbo and and McMillan and Wife, you know, between Quinn Martin and Fantasy Island, everybody who was in Hollywood got work. That's true. I, and I remember that with, um, particularly with uh, uh, Columbo, he had the greatest mm-hmm. guest stars. I mean, he's had he had Donald Pleasance, he had Roddy McDowell. Um, he Ruth, had everybody. Ruth Columbo Gordon, fucking had everybody. Everybody. Dick Van Dyke was a bad guy on that. Exactly, and that was the thing back then. The shows, especially the mystery, like you said, Columbo had so many guest stars. It was kind of difficult to pick which one was the killer because there were so many of them who were big nowadays there aren't as many big name stars that would come on doing TV. this type of television yeah no that's true so anytime anyone shows up um do you think this has become a hindrance to mystery storytelling in television because you need those guest stars to get the uh you know, the viewers, but then half the time, actually, no, more often, all the time, the guest stars are the killers. Yes, but I think, I think Bones does a well, a good enough job of bringing in guest stars that are not the killers. If they're helping out at the Institute, like Betty White has been on as a, as a, a forensic anthropologist, and she's not the killer. Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper, the medium. I love her. Um... Yeah, her oh. episode. Her episode. Her episode when they found out that Sweets was the kid's guardian. That just made me so happy. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, oh, oh gosh, there was another person. I am get- Dave. Tom. No, the guy from Saturday, from SCTV. 
Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas. It was Dave Thomas. I was going, no, that's the Wendy's guy, right? <laughs> I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah, Dave Thomas. So they've had, I think they've done a good job not always having the, the special guest stars be the, ba- the, the baddies. Well, that's one of the reasons why I do enjoy watching Bones so much. Like I said, I, 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 it, it does outthink me. It and SVU have been the only two detective shows in my adult life that I have watched that I have been surprised by on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. Me too. That's why I love them both. Uh, and you know what's funny is I'll watch, like I've, I've watched a lot of episodes of Law & Order, but I always get Law & Order. I don't know what it was about SVU, whether it was just the writers. I think it was just a smarter show, personally. Yeah. But, I mean, that show always, always got me. I think because, um, I think SVU is less procedural than Law & Order. Law, SVU goes more into the personal thing. Point taken. That's probably why I like it more yeah. now that I think about it. Yeah, because I think it was on SVU. That makes, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But Bones also frequently out-mysteries me. Like it did, how is this for a segue, oh. into The Price for the Past. Okay. I was not expecting where this fucker went. <laughs> I had no idea where it was going to go. They were saying, I was thinking, well, it can't be uh, What's-His-Face, who was uh, Booth's uh, mentor or whatever, that was played by the mummy guy. Um, right. <laughs> sorry, I can't think of his name. <laughs> um, real so, quick, real quick plot description mm-hmm. for people who might actually care. Um, the 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 man who mar- who 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 married Booth and um, Brennan, who was also you know, also ex military, mm-hmm. um, is murdered, and he of course goes to investigate, and it gets bad. Mm-hmm. It gets really bad. It gets. I I genuinely, I was sitting there thinking, I was sitting there thinking, and tell me if you were thinking this too, um, about halfway through the episode, I'm saying, please don't let it be one of his armies, guys. We've been through down this route before. Yeah, I thought the same thing. At first, I was kind of thinking, well, if it is the army, guys, maybe they were doing it to kind of uh, uh, get him sober, and he accidentally died. That okay, was my first okay, that, they, that. that they may have kidnapped him to take him somewhere to get him sober. And then he accidentally died. That was my, okay, what I was thinking. All right. But then well, it wasn't. I actually, okay, I would have liked that. I could have accepted that. Okay. Me too. Uh, but um, then, then I start. I was hoping, I was hoping, and as it got into the back half of the episode and more secrets started getting revealed, I'm going, um, are we going to get a big bad? Are we going to get a big bad for the season? And as it turns out, we are kind of. If that's what they're going with this, yeah. Sounds like it. I mean, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to introduce this, this, um, dark deed from, from, uh, from Booth's past. Now, they have discussed this murder before, haven't they? I remember it because he said it was. It stuck with him because I guess it was a birthday party for the little boy, and yes. he sniped his dad in front of the little boy. So that had to do something to the little kid. And oh, by the way, one real fast thing: um, I I was looking at the uh, episode titles, uh-huh. and while they don't have a lot of episode titles, they've got next week's or the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. They have the final episode title. Oh, what's what is it? You ready for the final episode title? The end, the end in the end, directed by David Boreanaz. Oh, that'll be fun. I hope it'll be a fun one and not uh, 
uh, angsty one. It's going to be the wedding. It's going to be the wedding. Yeah, I'm, yeah, no angst, please. They're going to deal with the angst before the actual final episode. Now, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. I also think uh, I'm putting out a prediction. Uh, okay. I, I, think, I don't think Zach is going to make it to the wedding. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think he's going to save Booth. I think he's going to f- jump in front of a bullet for Booth or for Brennan. He's going he's gonna to. Zach? Save. I think he is. Real? Okay, okay. I, think I have he is. to ask, what makes you think that? Well, um, actually, I have to say, I think, I think that because, uh, and I get to mention, we have an international fan of this section, uh, Susie Boo, shout out to you from South Africa. She heard some internet scuttle that uh, there's going to be actually two funerals and a wedding. So I was like, Okay, when we know Bone's dad, who could be the other one? I think it's Zach. And I'm hoping. Okay. And I'm hoping it's because he goes out heroically. Oh man! Wow, you just blew my mind and gave me a bummer for the next two weeks. Sorry. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. Thank you, thank you, just so much. All righty then. We have we 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 have had our bi-weekly boner, Mrs. C. Thank you so much. I thank will you. see you in two weeks for episode. What are we on now? Yes, episode five and episode six. Woohoo! The episode names are called, by the way, the mm-hmm. Tudor in the Tussle and the Flaw in the Saw. Uh oh. And welcome back. It's time for the Unknown Movie Challenge. This episode, we are joined by Hank Palmer, who some of you may Yay! some of you may remember from um, our exegesis of the uh, 1970s made-for-TV movie Gargoyles. Hank also is a Hank's also a writer for World of Crap. Where he comments on Yay! movies. He comments on movies much, much worse than this one. And uh, I have it on. Uh, I have his personal assurance. He he, te- he texted me just before uh, the show that he is indeed ready for battle. Yay! That's right. <laughs> and he's also okay, the I'm only one done. of us who has an authentic Viking accent. <laughs> That is very true. Yeah, a Charles Pierce Viking accent. Exactly. Yeah. With that, with that one proviso. Um, so this episode, uh, we are doing a movie that Hank suggested. It's a, a 1999 cannibal film called mm-hmm. Ravenous, directed by Antonio Antonia Bird, a uh, British director, uh, primarily known for television, uh, who was brought in at Robert Carlyle's insistence after the first director was cashiered a couple of weekends, a couple of weeks into production and written by Ted Griffith, um, who's done a number of things. Uh, he wrote the Ocean's Eleven reboot. He wrote Matchstick Man, uh, Tower Heist. Uh, this was his first produced screenplay. And uh, before we begin, I would just like to say something that popped into my mind when I first sat down and watched the movie. Uh, I was talking to Jeff uh, uh, not recently. This this was this was years ago. Um, about the cycle of Italian cannibal movies that lasted from about <laughs> 1972 to 1981. Uh, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, uh, The Man from Deep River, Cannibal Ferox. Ba- basically, any movie where people eat dead people. 
And uh, Jeff, you, I remember you said you don't like cannibal movies, um, but you do like you do like zombie movies, which are basically cannibal movies. So you do like cannibal movies so long as the people eating dead people are dead people. Then I yeah. will accept that. Okay. All right. Just wanted to clarify that. Well, but the question I, I'm, is, fine. I, I'm fine with that. Yes, well, but to be a cannibal, do you really have to eat a dead person? Uh, actually, that's a good point because uh, I'm not entirely sure that uh, our lead cannibal in this film kills the pe- doesn't just start noshing on people while they're still alive. However, it is much more troublesome to to gnaw away somebody's belly while they're still kicking and screaming. Um, yeah, wriggling about, crashing, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, it, now, I, I must point out, I must point out as, as I sit here and think about it, that truly I can't even say I'm that big of a, 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 a zombie fan because while there are several zombie films that I absolutely love and think they're classics of the horror genre, mm-hmm. most of them I do think are total shit. Well, most of them are total shit. Well, okay. All right. Okay. That's cool. As long as we're, we're all, we're all agreement on that too. Okay. Go on. Sorry. All right. Well, just briefly, uh, just to give you a, a background of the movie when we start, uh, it's set in, I'm guessing 1848 or so. Yeah. Yeah. The end of the Mexican American war. Right. Uh, where, uh, we first meet, uh, our hero, played by Guy Pierce, if you want to call him a hero, I don't. But for lack of a better term, uh, I guess protagonist maybe. Um, Main is, character. He's he's uh, playing a a, uh, a lieutenant in the U.S. Army named Boyd, who uh, basically uh, chickens out in the middle of uh, of a battle in the Mexican American War. Um, oh, and real fast before. Before we get too deep into into his chickening, um, I would like to say that if if you as a movie watcher have a problem remembering names, you don't have to worry about that in this case because Boyd's name is repeated at least thirty five thousand times. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I think I think it's just that's what people yelled when instead when they would forget a line instead of yelling line they just yell Boyd. And it seemed and Guy work. Pierce would glare at them, and right? Because Guy and go on to the next shot. Guy Pierce had almost no lines, so I think they were just jealous. They were just going. They would forget a line. They go, Boyd. See, if we were having a conversation here, I wouldn't have to do all these monologues. Anyway, so he chickens out in the middle of a battle, uh, plays dead, plays possum, uh, basically, and gets heaped on a bunch of ba- uh, bodies. Which, for some reason, rather than doing what most uh, soldiers in any battle throughout history would do, which is immediately strip his corpse for anything valuable and leave him to bloat in the sun. They take all these bodies with them back to their headquarters, which seems like the stupidest and least likely thing for any army ever to do. And they deserve what happens to them, which is he climbs out from beneath the bodies, having having had a bunch of blood drip into his mouth, which is everybody knows blood acts on any person the way spinach works on Popeye. He immediately becomes, <laughs> he becomes courageous and strong and he captures the mexican his cannon. biceps become large even i mean he gets there's an image of a steamer yeah exactly he gets he gets suddenly he has animated tattoos on his biceps um and so he captures the mexican command post and then he is um promoted 
uh, to Captain. So basically, the whole beginning of this, this movie, is pretty much the same, it's telling the same story as the opening credits to F Troop. <laughs> <laughs> now, I would have liked to have seen this happen on F Troop, at least for one episode. This would have been fun. I don't think anybody wanted to eat Frank Dakova. He looks stringy and nasty. <laughs> and well, well, you know, marinate him for a while. Oh, a while. Quite a while. Uh, although it's... It, everything tastes better with A1. <laughs> so, uh, he, is, he is given a promotion, reluctantly, um, by uh, his commanding officer, who's played by... Uh, uh, John Spencer, who uh, a lot of people remember as uh, Leo McGarry from uh, West Wing. Yay! He, but uh, Leo pretty much goes, you're kind of a coward, aren't you? I'm going to ship you off to some place where you can't embarrass me. So he's sent to um, this fort that appears to be, I don't know, in the middle of Donner's Pass. It's it's some way station on the the road that um, people take from Nevada to the California gold fields. But it's winter, so nobody's traveling. And um, it's run by uh, Jeffrey Jones in a very Jeffrey Jonesian performance. Um, now, well, before ahead. we get too far into Jeffrey Jonesian and, and into Jeffrey Jones land and, and, and the base, um, can I throw something out there, please? Yeah. Okay, just real fast. Uh, now, I have seen this, but I saw it once. I saw it in 1999, a, the week that it played here in, in, in my hometown. The week, yeah, and, it, didn't make, it didn't make much money. No, it did not. It, it did not. And the only reason that I even went to see it is because it said cannibals in the 1800s. And I'm like, okay, and I like Jeffrey Jones. So I'm like, all right, this should be fun. Now, I remembered absolutely nothing about this movie except that I enjoyed it and that I thought it was weird as fuck. Well, it is, we'll it, is more... it is a Czech American Western. <laughs> but we'll get we'll get more into that in a little bit, but right from the beginning on this watch, again the first time I've seen it since it came out, it had a major strike against it because I absolutely fucking hated the quote from Nietzsche followed by the eat me from anonymous. <laughs> Oh yeah. Also, uh, they misspelled right off the bat. They misspelled Nietzsche. By the, the I I was wondering <laughs> that that bugged me, and I didn't know why. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> well, like, Hank, Hank, let me ask me... you. Let, let me ask. Well, Hank, let me ask Hank real quick. Why? Uh, what prompted you to suggest this film? What was it about that you thought would be fun fun to talk about? Mm. Well, I thought Weird West would be kind of a different genre for y'all to tackle true, true. <laughs> and i i have to admit i kind of like this movie flaws and all there there um, are things there are things to like about it um did you see it when it came out or did you just catch up with it on Netflix? no i think i saw it on ifc back when we had cable ah. oh so i'm a ravenous first gen baby okay Apparently. Apparently, right. yeah. um yeah guy, uh, guy pierce is basically uh, I guess he's got PTSD. He's got PTSD, and he has um, a low-grade cannibalism infection. 
because he's he's drunk of the blood, but he has not tasted of the flesh. So uh, apparently that affects your ability to give any sort of a rational performance as an actor. <laughs> and he doesn't really bother. Uh, but lots of other people, there are lots of other people who are who are filling the screen with charm. As I said, Jeffrey Jones, um, he gives, Jeffrey Jones gives a very restrained performance. I may think this only because the last thing I saw him in was Howard the Duck. Now, there is the scene later in the movie, which we'll get to, we'll get to where he where he definitely, um, shall we say, Jimmy Dean hand factories it up. Yes, we could say but that, I, and I would agree. But I have to say, until that scene, Jeffrey Jones is one of my favorite things in this movie. I, I agree with you, Scott. For him, this is an amazingly understated and almost subtle performance. And I mean that loving Jeffrey Jones as an actor. Oh, I do too, but, I th- but I think subtlety is not, something, it's not what he's paying No, it's for. not. But in this one, I think he actually does give a subtle performance. There's a lot of little things that he does um, that I found absolutely fascinating this watch. He was the main reason that I watched the first third of the movie. I mean, kept going. He, I'm just the actor and me watching him. I'm just going, oh, all right, I, yeah, all right, way to rock it. And no, she took away my eggs, but I'm, I'm liking you, dude. Yeah, to, uh, just to for the audience, uh, Jeffrey Jones plays the commander of this remote fort, um, and it's a, it's a refreshing depiction of a professionally disappointed officer, uh, because he's neither delusional about his importance nor embittered by his obscurity. Um, he's, he's this wry, bookish, even-tempered man who um, accepts the utter military deficiencies of his command, uh, but somehow gets everybody to do their job, more or less, and is, very, and is quite welcoming to, um, to Guy, even though uh, it, it's obvious that Guy is not going to do his job, which is act. He's, <laughs> he's still pretty welcoming. Um, but you see, but remember, you can tell from the very big opening scenes of at least in this particular fort that absolutely nothing ever happens there. So this incredible black hole of of talent sucking, you know, is something interesting, at least for a few days. Right. Uh, then there's also David Arquette. Who... Fuck him. <laughs> David Arquette, who just fuck him. Oh wait, hey, I'm gonna put weed in the peace pipe, man. It's gonna be so funny. I fucking hated that scene. You know why? Besides the fact it was badly acted, that scene pissed me off. Well, it was like it was like the he never actually smoked weed, and all he knew about it was watching Reefer Madness. And we know that's a load of bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the giggles is. Yeah, not for a long-term smoker. Uh, <laughs> I really, I, I, I just, I hate that stereotype. I do. It bugs me. It's all. That's why I don't like a lot of stoner movies. Because all I keep thinking is, all of you people are bad stoners, and you're not funny. I don't care. But yeah, sorry. That scene. That scene. And the thing. Okay, jumping ahead just a little bit, but I need to throw that out there since we're talking about David Arquette. Did you notice that? Okay, without we'll save the spoilers. In Act Two, when he shows back up, he seemed like a completely different fucking character. 
yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, I guess he stopped smoking, or maybe that maybe he actually smoked on that film for the first time. <laughs> maybe what we saw there was his, that would explain a the giggles and b the complete you know, the, the complete different acting job for the back half of the movie. But sorry, <laughs> needless to say, there was strike two against the movie right there. But Jeffrey Jones was still good for me. Go, sorry for the interruption. Go on. Uh, do you ever think uh, uh, Neil McDonough? Uh, looks back on this film, uh, Neil McDonough, who's who's uh, having a bit of a career resurgence in the uh, uh, DC CW TV series, playing the big bad Damian Dark on several shows, um, yeah. uh, Arrow and uh, Legends of Tomorrow, and he's also appeared on Flash. Uh, do you think he ever looks back on this movie? Maybe just pops it in the TV and goes, man, look how cut I was. <laughs> I'm naked in a river going, oh, I'm just a man. Not enough shots of me naked in a river. It's just. <laughs> I don't know. After being well, in that what? icy water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, fortunately, you see nothing below the waist. So, yeah. But, you know, as as big as a cliche as that character was, McDonough brought his usual McDonough charm to the character and made him interesting. He did, although I'm pretty convinced that the reason he was cast as the gung-ho soldier was because those those pale blue eyes of his look extra creepy after he dies and they become the lifeless oh, yeah. but accusing glare of a corpse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> nobody nobody just stares through dead eyes like that guy does. It's just it was That was part it, of the audition. They just threw blood on him and went, "Okay, you're hired." Yeah. <laughs> so, uh the plot really gets going when Oh, uh, hang on. Hang on. We do have one we do have one other character that we do need to introduce before we get to the plot. All right. We do have we do have our our not quite pastor but religious figure of of the fort played by Jeremy Davies who is currently doing a much better acting job on this season of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, he's on Sleepy Hollow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's playing the big bad this season on Sleepy Hollow. And while being just as quirky and irritating, he's actually much better at it this season. I mean, at least now. He's gotten better at it. Uh, Jeremy Davies, much like David Arquette, fuck him in this movie. I think yeah. they've both given better performances in this. They suck. I I gotta disagree, at least for one scene. Okay. And it's the one when they're they're traveling to the cave. They think they're going to maybe rescue Mrs. McCarthy and uh, Colonel Ives. And remember when uh, Calhoun Calhoun uh, gets caught licking something well, he I, 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 be licking. Okay, yes. that scene. We'll get to that scene. But okay, it, okay. You know what? I will give you that scene. Okay, I, I will, really I will like that scene. Toffler's reaction there. I thought he did a good job on that. I would, yeah. And we'll talk I about that. Go ahead. I would agree. I would uh, we'll, agree. With we'll that. get to, we'll get to that scene. I'm sorry. We'll get to that scene plot wise. But you were about to get the plot moving. My apologies. Go ahead. Okay, well, well can I can I put yeah. in one more thing before we get into the plot? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, just you know, giving a little history about how the movie was made. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the 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 first director, the studio started arguing with him, 
and sent somebody to kind of micromanage the production, and then he was fired. Do you know who the first replacement director was? No. Who? No. A guy whose only experience directing a movie was for Home Alone 3. <laughs> oh, God. And the cast literally mutinied. Oh, oh my God. That's how this British woman wound up. Uh, yeah. Antonia Bird, Doctor Who. That's where I recognize the name. Okay, sorry, it just hit me. Moving on. Do you remember that? Do you remember the, his name? No, I should have. I should have put it down in my notes. But hey, who cares? That's a fair point. <laughs> That's a fair point. Okay, so the plot gets moving, so to speak, when um, uh, Robert Carlyle shows up, gaunt and bearded and rag wrapped and suffering from frostbite. And uh, he collapses on the doorstep of the fort and they bring him inside. They immerse him in hot water and they start rubbing his extremities. And amazingly, his frostbite clears up very quickly. Um, And he uh, recovers with astonishing speed and then tells them the story. He was part of an ill-fated wagon train that was heading west. They were waylaid by a storm. They took shelter in a cave. Um, the snow never really abated. They had lost any hope of finding the trail. And when the first of the party died from malnutrition, the other And it was the black guy. Of course it was the black guy. It's always the black guy who dies first. <laughs> and they, they, they died. They, they dined on, um, on a, uh, a black guy a la cliche. And, uh, would it be and, a bad thing to make a joke about dark meat? I think it would. I'm going to say it would. I'm going to say let's not. But that's just me. Um, So then they all say, hey, this is fantastic. I've never felt better. And um, so they all start, basically, uh, Colonel Ives, who is leading the wagon train, starts killing um, the homesteaders, the would-be homesteaders, and uh, cooking them up. So uh, Carlisle leaves and makes his way to the fort. Uh, but there, he le- left behind one homesteader's wife and uh, Colonel Live. So uh, Jeffrey Jones, his name is Colonel Hart, uh, gathers his meager forces and they head up into the mountains to rescue this poor woman become, before she becomes an entree. And now, uh, before that, yes. before that, real fast, I do must I must throw in because it is kind of important. We uh, do get the story of the Wendigo. Here's the thing. What, what, two things. One, one, the, the story of the Wendigo is delivered um, in, in, by uh, a Native American in his language, which is translated by um, Jeffrey Jones. Although the Native American clearly speaks English because he responds to complicated orders and requests. So I'm not sure what that was about except atmosphere. Two, as other people pointed out, this is supposed to take place in the Sierra Nevadas, and the Wendigo is an Algonquin or Northeastern um, native legend. So it's a bit of a cultural well, diffusion. Uh, actually, it, the, the, it's an Ojibwe legend, and supposedly there were some of that tribe in Montana and North Dakota. Okay. So maybe if George the Native American, and didn't you love the way that George and his sister were named George and Martha? Martha, yeah. <laughs> but, you which know, mean, supposedly which, I guess he was well-traveled. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, if he ever gets in a hassle with Batman, he's covered. 
<laughs> my sister Martha? Martha. <laughs> Why did you say that name? I just because I just want to hear you do that voice. Um so yes, yeah, so they the the legend of the Wendigo, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh it's basically someone who stoops to eating human flesh and in doing so, usually a fallen enemy in wartime, uh, they consume not only the the meat, but they also consume that person's spirit and imbibe their strength and they become more fearsome. But at the same time, the cost of that is their hunger for human flesh becomes sharper and more of a, of a compulsion that they can't resist. So they become... Soup more than human, but also a monster at the same time. And uh, uh, George does this all with a a uh, a sort of a chamois puppet, and uh, and uh, the the aid of uh, Jeffrey Jones translating. And then they just go, okay, well, thanks for that, and then they move on. So it's oh, like I would also I would also like to put out in my continuous fuck you to bad performances. That particular performance, um, as we as I was watching him tell the story, as I was enjoying the story because I'm sitting there thinking, oh yeah, until dawn, the Wendigo. Okay, this is kind of cool. All right, um, his the way he was telling the story, all I could think of was early Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I could not stand that again. His performance telling that particular story. Fuck you. Go ahead and go on. I don't know. I didn't feel that. I didn't, I didn't get Keanu Reeves. I got, I got his eyes were kind of bugged out. I got sort of uh, maybe overdirected. I don't know. What did you think, Hank? Mm. It didn't really hit me one way or another. I mean, it was just more, okay, you know, let's bring the legend in now. It was about uh, gotcha, that time gotcha. for it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean the Wendigo, involved. it's a really interesting legend. Um, yes. You know, it seems to be connected particularly with winter and famine oh. and you know it's thought that it's kind of a, a kind of to caution the listeners against gluttony you know, because the legend is that once the wendigo starts eating it can't you know it it depends on what kind of wendigo you're talking about apparently there's a wendigo creature and then the wendigo can also his spirit can take over a human being oh but the, the, the Wendigo creature is really kind of bizarre and creepy. Uh, and they're described as being as tall as a tree. And even though they're constantly eating, they never can get enough. So they're, they're kind of emaciated and kind of look zombie-like with their flesh peeling off and stuff like that. That would and, have been uh, a better movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would have enjoyed that movie. Yeah, but you wouldn't have been able to see Carlisle going so absolutely that shit crazy. That's true. He does give, uh, he gives an interesting performance. He starts off as this sort of uh, haunted man who's who's done things of which he's he's mortally ashamed, um, and then he just becomes this sort of uh, cooler than thou Bond villain toward the end. He's just sort of you know sucking but, a cigar but remember- and trading but but do not forget that to go from that uh, larva to the he had to get into the the, the, the chrysalis of uh, more ham than a Jimmy Dean sausage factory. 
true. <laughs> there true. was that brief 15 minutes by the Riverside where Jim Carrey would have given a more subtle performance. <laughs> yes, Jim, Jim Carrey. Which was... makes it all the more astounding that he becomes said Bond villain trading Beaumont and, and, and smoking the cigarillos. Because in those 10 to 15 minutes, he is a babbling, batshit, insane, stupid-ass, cliche douchebag. <laughs> I, yeah, I have to agree. Just, just to catch people up, they... Um... On the way to, um, on the way to uh, the cave where the uh, the cannibalistic uh, settlers are uh, are marooned, uh, let's just call them what they are. They're chud. Chud. All right. Very <laughs> fair enough. Um, Jeremy Davies' uh, character finds a bone, because apparently Carlisle was just you know tossing him over, gnawing on him and tossing him over his shoulder like Henry VIII on the on the way to the fort. And he gets so excited that he basically falls off a cliff like a moron, uh, stoves in his bottom ribs on one side. And so that that slows him up a bit. And uh, Neil McDonough has to take time off uh, from uh, shrinking his balls and showing off his six pack abs to care for him and 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 apply a very bloody bandage. And then in the middle of the night, Jeremy Davies wakes up shocked uh, and as Hank said, uh, he was licking me. He was licking me, pointing at Robert Carlyle. And Carlyle says, oh, I, I was having a nightmare. But that's a weird thing to have a nightmare about. But OK. Um, and I will say again, I will say again in response to Hank, this actually is a good scene. It's actually this, the, the whole sequence. Everyone's performance in the scene. That scene, I think, is really good. And it's the first it's the first part of the movie where I really felt comfortable laughing knowing that it was um this was all intentional that the that the movie wanted me to laugh i mean i will say this for for ravenous it's a witty cannibal movie but not in a not in a sly knowing metatextual ah the grim absurdity of it all kind of way it's it's character comedy there's just enough there's just enough humor uh that comes from the characters and their interactions to establish familiarity and in some cases a certain affection for the characters before they start dying off or do they but <laughs> what he's he was licking me that was funny and the movie has a lot of a fair number of funny lines um so i did i did enjoy that um but it's sort Jeremy Davies does become just sort of gibbers from then on. And, you know, who can blame you? It's it's upset, upsetting to break your ribs and then to have them licked in the middle of the night. But it's he, he does just sort of become useless and annoying. But, yes, so they get to the cave and uh, Jeffrey Jones sends Boyd and uh, Neil McDonough into the into the cave. And Boyd is still pretty useless himself. And here's the thing. Uh, McDonough, who's a private, is carrying the revolver and Boyd who's a captain is carrying a rifle, which is not right and <laughs> would not happen in the army. Well, well, we, know uh, the, we, we, we know who the real soldier is though. Yeah. I, I think it's to signify just how much contempt they hold Boyd in for his soldiering skills. I assume that was, yeah. I mean, I assumed it just, it just kind of 
bugged me because it's, it was such a breach in protocol. But yes, I, I, I think you're right. Um, so they go in and then Carlisle starts this grand mal seizure of bad acting choices. <laughs> fuck him in this where he's panting like a puppy and making finger guns and digging in the dirt and i mean the the dirt thing at least pays off because he comes up with a bone-handled knife and um he guts jeremy davies which relieves us of any further performances from him um and i loved carlisle in his in his first performance you know playing the haggard you know victim mm -hmm. i really liked him in that and then all of a sudden he turns into whatever the fuck that was and it's not all that sudden it's not all that sudden though because remember after the the licking scene remember how that is Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't be trusted, you know, right. tie me up and this sort of thing. So, you know, it, it wasn't entirely. But I will say No, you're you're you Hank, you, you make a very good point. I just want to inject something, interject something really quick. Um, I think the title of this episode should be remember after the after the licking scene. Because <laughs> I think th I think that that's that sums it up pretty nicely. But yeah, you're right. No, he does he does get he does start to he does appear to panic and wonder if he's going mad and all that. But it does just turn into this sort of sh yeah, it goes way over the top. Yeah. There, there's no denying that. But you know, the thing about it is, who, who the director is not going to tell Robert Carlyle to to. <laughs> notch it down because she got the job because of him and she was also his business partner yeah yeah oh okay yeah, part hey. of the reason she i did not know that yeah, main part of the reason she got that job is because he he insisted so uh now i, I do have to say the one saving grace of this particular sequence as much as i uh, do not like robert carlisle's performance i do thoroughly enjoy how many characters die in that scene yeah Quite it's quickly. a sudden explosion of total carnage, and that did make me very happy. It made me very unhappy. Okay. Because there was an hour left to go. <laughs> okay. And there's like, okay, no, wait, if you're doing that, if you're killing everybody here, what's going to, oh, it's not just going to be him and... And Boyd for the rest of the movie is it, then it wasn't even that I, I will say that that there is that is a just that's a viscerally satisfying explosion of of mayhem and gore. Uh, but for me, the movie completely runs out of gas at this point. The the whole rescue party yeah. is dead except for Boyd and and Boyd jumps off a cliff because he rather than deal with Robert Carlyle. And so it breaks his leg. So, you know, it's going to be a fast paced roller coaster ride of action from here on out. Um, and then we get, I don't know how you long know what? Of, of, of Guy Pierce wigging out in a hole in the ground, arguing with Neil McDonough's, McDonough's corpse, while Robert Carlyle sits on a riverbank skipping patellas or scapulas or something. It was, it was, oh, very, and. It was, it was very Huck Finn if uh, Huck had been a deranged cannibal. I have to call shenanigans. I have to call sh serious shenanigans on one scene. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, he jumps off the cliff 
And, well, first off, there's no way in hell he would have survived that fall. Cinema Sins ding. Um, yes. Yes. No fucking way. It bugged me this time. Although, you know, uh, a dead Neil McDonough is incredibly fucking creepy. That was just that was that whole sequence. As, it may have been stupid, but him ble- being bloody, that was just very, very creepy. What, what I call total shenanigans on is the way the scene um the editing in the scene when Carlisle goes from the top of the mountain to where the hole is, and I believe it was three shots. Mm-hmm. Something like that. If there had been, if they, they had done some way to like expend more time than pass, I wouldn't have called shenanigans. But no, he makes it down there in three, maybe four shots. I call total shenanigans in that sequence. Well, then uh, here's the thing: uh, guy sustains a compound fracture. I mean, he has to laboriously, we, we get a good 90 seconds of him uh, pushing uh, the broken bone back inside. It his only seems that long. Skin. But, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and then he gets up and walks back to the fort. He's not even leaning on a stick. This is, this is what I call, if not shenanigans, I call, really, movie? Really? Um, well, I remember, remember he... He did eat the soldier. That's right. He'd eaten the flesh, so now he's got the, the super And uh, it was cannibal, the soldier uh, guy, too, so if we follow Oh, the, yeah. You know, yeah, that's like steroids, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're right. You're right. I'm uh, just saying, right. follow the rules of the movie. Yeah, see, I, I, didn't, I missed the part where he ate McDonough. I, I didn't, for some reason, I, I don't know, maybe I went to get... Yeah, there's a close-up where the knife, where he takes his knife and cuts into the, the guy's trousers, and then starts to take and it there's that line there's that line later um when when um carlisle comes back when he says you didn't finish oh right you right know? right he says right and he and he's he said he ate mcdonough and said um i can see why you didn't finish he was a little tough but yes then, <laughs> but then a good soldier should be or something like that uh, yeah. And, you know, I liked Carlisle as the Bond villain. I enjoyed him as the cannibal Bond villain. I just hated his 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 pupa stage or chrysalis <laughs> stage. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, you know, one thing that, that was kind of interesting was, and once again, I'm going to kind of back up a little bit here. Go ahead. Is, did you notice how he always had that rosary mm-hmm. with him yep. wrapped around his wrist? And really, that's the first clue that he is lying because the rosary belonged to Mrs. McCarthy. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh, whoa! Okay, we got Shyamalan. Not, not really, because it doesn't make me hate everything. <laughs> um, but there, are, there aren't that many Catholics in uh, Scotland, are there? Mostly Presbyterians. Now they think about it, the rosary. <laughs> the rosary should have been a should have been a giveaway. That's that's a very good wow. point. Yeah, yeah. They do, and they do make a. But yeah, he's and he's he's wearing it uh, when pretty he much up. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Even even later on, and well, I won't do a spoiler here. I'll uh, oh, go ahead. We're spoiling. Go ahead. Spoiler. Well, you know, later on when when Calhoun shows up again. In his alter ego, yeah, he's still wearing it. Yeah, he's still got it wrapped around his wrist, which would be a weird thing for an army officer to have. Yeah, <laughs> but no, nobody else, nobody else looks askance at it. The only, you know, the only person who 
fixates on it is uh, is Boyd. Um, Boyd. Yeah, just say that, say that, but a hundred more times, and you'll have a good part of this movie. Um, Boyd. <clears throat> so there's there is a um, here again the the movie has run out of steam for me at this <clears throat> point. I mean there is there is a surprise where oh here's your new commander. And it turns in and it walks up and it's Robert Carlyle playing Colonel Ives, having having acquired a spotless uniform from somewhere. Who knows? Um, and the personality of Blofeld. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, then there's a lot of sitting around, uh, which I guess is supposed to build tension. But I did. Dis- I discovered this movie through this movie. I discovered that. Um, I can watch Robert Carlyle read a book and still remain remarkably tension free. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Also, if you can't beat David Arquette in a game of chess, you're an idiot. I don't care how drunk you are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, and, and the movie picks up again once it gets once Jeffrey Jones shows up, having been resurrected um, by the power of man meat. Uh, <laughs> wait that's a different movie yeah that is i really could have put that differently and should have anyway um so yes he he's uh he's he uh, shows up and now he's in league with uh carlisle and they kill the horses for some reason i don't know why because they they make a point of, of saying that the cannibals don't eat uh animal meat um so i don't know why they killed I the think, horses. I think okay, if I'm I'm going to extrapolate here a little bit just because I, I, I want to make a joke. I think that they they killed the horses because they didn't want Guy Pierce if he had his craving to go that way. They only wanted him to focus on the man meat. I thought it was maybe to isolate the fort, but I'm not sure. What what do you think, Hank? That could be too. Yeah, I think isolating them was at least part of it. Although you gotta wonder how in the hell uh, Colonel Hart managed to kill those horses without anybody noticing some noise. Horses and he kills them and cuts their heads off. Yes, I mean, if you kill a horse, the horse in the next stall is going to get irked or <laughs> frightened. They're going to scream. Horses scream. They make, they can make a lot of noise. Also, I didn't when uh, Guy Pierce first tries to kill um, Carlisle when he's masquerading as the as the colonel. Uh, tries to cut his throat, and the Indian woman, Martha, jumps on his back and puts a knife to his throat and says, if he dies, you die. She knows he's a Wendigo, doesn't she? Doesn't she know the Wendigo killed her brother? Why is she trying to stop? She told him when he says... when uh, That he needs to die. Pierce she says, said he needs to die. Yeah. I was going to make this point. Okay. Yeah, that there are things about this movie that don't make a lot of sense at times. Well, I, will, no I will say in its defense, uh, I did read a little bit of the background that I read. Uh, because of the studio interference and the and the the fact that they were changing directorial horses in midstream, that um, there was a a considerable amount of um, rewriting on the set. And uh, Ted doesn't Ted, surprise me. Ted Griffith, yes, Ted Griffith was there in uh, Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, I guess by then it was um, rewriting. You know, a- as they shot. And and uh, speaking to someone who has done that. It's not always easy to keep, you know, a complete airtight grip on yeah. what happened before and what, what, what you shot and what was just something you wrote that they never shot or you rewrote and they shot or they shot without you writing it. So um, 
I, I will excuse some some small questions, but the thing that Martha stopping him from killing him, I don't. Here's my only question about that. He says to her earlier, how do you kill a Wendigo or a Wendigo? Mm-hmm. And she says you have to die yourself. You have to sacrifice uh, yourself. Well, again. I think he was, it was actually, I think that conversation was more, I don't want to be a Wendigo. How do I, you know, how do I stop being one? And I got she the, basically tells him, you I got can't. The, Oh, okay. I got the impression she was, he was asking her, how do I destroy this monster? How do I kill him? And she said, you can't. Uh, I think I think she said, unless you become one, and then you have to sacrifice or something like that. So I don't know if she was stopping him from trying to kill him. I don't know. I don't get it. It just doesn't make any sense. That that was a seems like a big plot hole, but whatever. Anyway, the cast gets winnowed down. We do get to see, if not... I, I was disappointed we didn't get to see David Arquette die horribly. We just get to Agreed. see... We just get to see his bloody corpse. You know, I'm not going to look. It wasn't a, enough. I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. But you're right; that wasn't enough for me. Um, <laughs> but it was a relief to have him gone. Um, and then wasn't it weird that the uh, the alcoholic major, who was too drunk to remember this guy <clears throat> wandering into the fort, um, and telling a long story about cannibalism. Uh, yeah, even though he was there while it was being told, yeah, he so, was on his feet. Yeah, says I don't remember any of that. Uh, suddenly becomes a model of sober propriety. Once I shows up, <laughs> he never takes a drink. He's 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 not only not this sort of dissipated dipsomaniac. He he becomes really quite strong. He lays out Guy Pierce with one punch. I mean, he's he's like well, yeah. I don't. So I'm going. Well, is he? But he's not eating. He's not eating the the superpowering flesh, because he gets killed and turned into stew. So why? I was just like, why are you? Did you just run out of bourbon? I would think you would be having a withdrawal symptoms. So I was like, that was another weird character turn that came out of nowhere and kind of made no sense. And it's just like, well, we just need somebody now. Tail shakes. It, it just seemed like a plot point. They needed someone to run interference for Carla because you can't have Blofeld doing his own strong arm work. You need somebody, you need a henchman to, mm. to beat up the yeah. protagonist. Well, there is the old trope about the, the second in command who suddenly finds himself in charge of things, you know, straightening up. But yeah, it, it really, you know, it, it would seem like way too, way too quick, you know, uh, uh, pulling himself together and you know, suddenly he, he's in command and he and he wasn't he wasn't even taking secretive pulls at the bottle. I mean, the yeah. guy was basically blotto the whole f- first act, right right up in right up in to like the middle of the movie, and then suddenly, um, he's a uh, he's a teetotaling careerist. It just it just seemed odd. Maybe seeing maybe seeing the horse guts and um, what was left of David Arquette scared him straight. I don't know. Well, I don't would care. me up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I would be encouraged to drink if only in celebration. <laughs> well, At least on David Arquette, yes. Yeah. And then, then yeah. not the horses, though. Yeah, no, not the horses. Yeah. Granted, I don't. Well, I remember, he gave him an extra punch and said, "This is for the horse." <laughs> uh, that's, true. that's true. That's true. That's true. And then we get to the point where, uh, toward the very end of the movie, uh, Carlyle delivers a speech about manifest destiny. 
And it becomes yeah. it becomes obvious, or at least I began to suspect, that the man eat man storyline is is an allegory for for uh, ravenous American consumerism and and imperial ambitions on the world stage. Um, it seemed yeah. like yeah, yeah. It just seemed like oh, let's 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 get a let's slip a moral into our cannibal movie. Uh, Metaphor much? Fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it wasn't it wasn't terribly heavy-handed but it was uh, it was enough it was enough it wasn't quite it wasn't quite the oliver stone mighty hammer of pretentiousness i'd say maybe the mighty ken burns hammer of pretentiousness okay all right yeah well, it does make a good fit though with the wendigo legend because once again oh, if you're a wendigo you're always hungry for more and you can't you know, everything you gobble up, it's it's still not enough. You got to have more. Still leaves you feeling hollow inside. That's right. Mm. That's true. That's true. As as metaphors go, it's 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 not a bad portrait of the American character. No, and, and for the time period, when you think the late eighteen forties is really when you know manifest destiny is getting to be a real catchphrase in the politics. We yeah, we did we did consume we did eat up. Gobble up about half of Mexico, so yep. <laughs> this is true. All right, okay, I'll give him that one. Yeah, relax, if movie. They, uh, you're, you know, you're... at least they they didn't keep hounding on it. I mean, you know, they, you know that that was okay. Yes, yes, you're right. It was not. It well, like Jeff said, it was it was not it was not Oliver Stone level. Um, no. hammering. It was uh, you know Ken Burns level. Um, all right. Well, it's about that time, I think. So let's get to our, um, to our fascinating and irritating things. And, oh, good. Uh, Have you got a minute for a couple of other things? Sure. I'd like to mention. Yeah. Well, okay. You notice during the flashback when Calhoun tells the, you know, the story of being caught up in the mountains and everything. You never see him, and you never actually see Colonel Eyes. Oh, hey, you're right. That is true. That I is didn't true. Notice that. But remember when he has that that when they're talking outside, when he and Boyd are talking at the at the post, uh, you know, and he's he's you know admitting that he's he's really Calhoun and all this sort of thing. There's an implication that this was not the first time this had happened with him. Because mm -hmm. right, that, that is true. Because he says, you know, he he first, you know, he learned about the Wendigo from the scout, you know, and ate the scout, and oh yeah, hey, did did a great job, cured my tuberculosis and all this, and then he went to Denver, and then apparently the getting trapped in the mountains in the cave happened after that. So I kind of wonder if actually Calhoun was Colonel Ives. And he deliberately misled these people to have a nice little larder and then go on to Fort Spencer. Hmm. That wouldn't surprise me. Interesting. Interesting. That that also reminded me there was one other goof that someone mentioned. Uh, is he does say, yeah, he, he said, I went on to Denver, and somebody pointed out that Denver wasn't founded until like 10 years later. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I went on to Denver, but it wasn't there yet, so I kept moving. I went on to the and, big spot of land where Denver will be soon. And, you know, the whole bit about using the fort to prey on travelers and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically just your evil innkeeper 
thing. Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. True. Use the Fort Boyd. Oh, Psycho. I mean, you know, there there are actually quite a lot of stories in folklore about evil innkeepers, and many of them, well, in in this one Chinese novel called Outlaws of the Marsh. Several times in it, they, they run up against, the heroes run up against innkeepers who not only kill their guests, they eat them. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Huh. Oh, 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 oh darn it. There was one other thing I wanted to wanted to put in here. Uh, you know, the, the story Calhoun tells is, I mean, it's the Donner Party, but it's also a lot of it comes from the true life story of Alfred Packer. Mm-hmm. Y'all it was a Schmuckwinkle today. Uh, yeah, and the, the Cannibal, the musical. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with that film, yeah, that was very heavily based on the, the Packer and and the Donner Party too. But uh, just just as a funny thing, you might like to know is uh, supposedly the, the um, oh. Okay, I'm sorry. This will be too long a story if I tell it. But just wanted to point out that in 1968, the students at the University of Colorado named the grill in the student union the Alfred G. Packer Memorial Grill. (laughs) And you know what the motto was? What? Have a friend for lunch. Uh, Ah. (laughs) Yep, I guess if... uh... I guess if you know a few years of the Vietnam War, and you're going to develop some gallows humor. <laughs> All right. Okay, but anyway, let's get to what. Okay, uh, uh, Jeff, go ahead. Fascinating, irritating. Uh, okay. All right. Um, the fascinating thing for me. Okay, well, first off, I've got to say, in spite of me bitching incessantly about the acting in this movie, I give this film an automatic pass because, of course, it killed all of its characters. Yep. The fascinating, uh, I think, thing for me is uh, really how weird this movie is. Because, like I said, I mean, it has that opening little eat me, which you're supposed to giggle at. The, 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 the credits have kind of a grindhouse feel to them. Both mm-hmm. in the fonts and 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 the way they are delivered, you get some of these very you know um, intense, uh, well acted moments, and then you get this fucking over the top sequences. And again, whether it, it, it's and then with the humor, and then sometimes it goes to being you know very intense and very scary and gross. It just it bounces all over the place tonally, and um, just as a uh, as someone who does enjoy the, the the you know bouncing around in tones, I appreciated that. I, I, I whether it was intentional or not, I did find it interesting. Along the same lines, the thing that I found most irritating about the film, and this is something we haven't discussed yet. The music. Oh, okay. I hated. I hated the music. Now, uh, to 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 clarify, while I enjoyed the individual like music pieces, there were some music pieces that I thought were quite fitting. What I didn't like was how every time there was a major musical theme, it was done in a completely different style. Like there was a chase scene that was done to fucking dueling banjos. 
Mm, that's right. Um, uh, there yeah. was another scene that had, and I can't remember what scene it was, but it was very uh, violin heavy. It kind of sounded like the Kronos Quartet and Requiem for a Dream. And it was very, very intense music. And then there was another sequence that had a completely different feel for it. Every major sequence in this film, it felt like a different person had come in to score it. And after about the, the third time this happened, it just got annoying. And I really fucking hated the dueling banjos chase scene. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really even... I didn't really notice it till you mentioned it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that was a little silly. <laughs> Especially because it came after the uh, the Kronos Quartet violin sequence. And I absolutely loved that musical sequence. It got me into the scene. I was like, all right, this is intense. This is intense. And then we got the bow, 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 bow. And it just it, it pissed me off. But there you go. I'm done. Okay. Hank? Well, um... Yeah, I, I'm kind of with Jeff. You know, this this movie, it's just definitely weird. It <laughs> throws stuff at you that you just aren't really expecting. And some of it is quite inexplicable <laughs> in some of the things they do. Uh, I did find it fascinating that they filmed this in the Carpathian Mountains. Huh, and cool. that, was, that was kind of neat because, you know, when you really think about it, this... It's not just straight cannibalism. I mean, there's some vampire tropes in this thing as well. I mean, it seems yes. very appropriate that they would be filming it in the Carpathians. Mm -hmm. Besides the fact it was probably cheaper to film it there. Yeah. Uh, irritating. Yeah, I, I got to go with David Arquette. The, the, the stoner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it had been done with a little lighter touch... It would have been, uh, okay, you know, bunch of guys isolated out in the frontier post. What are you going to do? You know, but, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was just That's... about cheering when, when, when David got it. Although yeah. we didn't see it, but, you know, when you, when you see his body up there on the roof all disemboweled, you know, it's like, all right. <laughs> I was ready for that. <laughs> Why didn't they do it sooner? Now, did you notice even, did you guys notice that there was that one scene later where um, Jeffrey Jones and Boyd are sharing a pipe? And I'm pretty sure it's full of smoke because of the way Jeffrey Jones inhales and the way he hands it to yeah. Guy Pierce. And yeah. Jeffrey Jones does a ten times better job of making you think, yeah, we're smoking pot, but we're good stoners. <laughs> Yes, I did notice that way. Yeah, when they're when they're on the on the march, when they're, I think it's their first night out from the fort when they're on their way on their rescue mission. That was. Uh, that's right. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, for me the fascinating thing, and this is something Hank just touched on. But um, I became a little impatient, if not bored, with all these cat and mouse games uh, that the movie devolved into <laughs> in its last act, and and I wondered why they didn't just do a traditional cannibal horror movie where Carlisle, you know, hunted them down in the forest and killed and ate them one by one. And then it dawned on me when when we get to the scene toward the end where Carlisle is tempting uh, Boyd with blood, it's really less a cannibal movie than it is a vampire story. Um, the 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 uh, the way the eating the flesh uh, confers uh, superpowers and the ability to heal from anything and, and 
pre presumably uh, a form of um, immortality since Jeffrey Jones returns from from the dead. Um, it was just it's it you say it takes the it takes the vampire tropes and sets them in something that is a little more um, realistic because so, cannibalism certainly does exist. Um, but when Jeffrey Jones is resurrected and he appears at the fort, uh, for me, the impression that this is really a vampire movie was confirmed when he says when he's trying to recruit Boyd um, <laughs> into their undead ranks. And he says, and I quote, um, it's lonely being a cannibal, tough making friends. Sub okay. Substitute He's a cannibal. They only want one thing. Yeah, exactly. Substitute vampire for cannibal, and that line, word for word, could be in any vampire movie. It's yeah. Not. So, uh, I thought that that was that was fascinating that they decided to to make a just take something that's just gross, but uh, but exists, and give this supernatural gloss to it. Uh, the ending made me uncomfortable. Uh, in my naughty parts, uh, it's worth noting. I think because usually in a usually in a monster movie, when the monster dies, there's a palpable sense of relief and often triumph. Um, occasionally mixed with a bit of, you know, "Twas beauty killed the beast" style melancholy, but this one was uncomfortably intimate with our hero, such as he was, <laughs> lying on top of the monster, the two of them clamped groin to groin by a giant bear trap. It it almost felt like the filmmakers got bored with their movie and just wandered in, in into a weird sex dungeon. <laughs> just made me feel, oh, oh, boys, now that's enough. Come on. But, uh, that's right. So there you go, Ravenous from 1999. Uh, Hank, thank you very much for joining us and for suggesting it. Uh, yes, yes, thanks. It's been a while since I've seen it. And, David Arquette fucked it for 10 minutes. <laughs> and, well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. Yeah, I was very disappointed. I mean, you, you mentioned it uh, last year. Uh, we were going to do it, but it was uh, removed from Netflix the way Netflix does. Yeah, uh, I was very excited to hear that it come back. Uh, all in all, I think it's a it's an interesting movie. It's it's a uh, definitely worth watching. It it has its virtues. If only for Jeffrey Jones. If only for Jeffrey Jones. I mean, he is just he is fun to watch. And also for two of the three different characters that uh, Robert Carlyle seems to play. Yes. Ignore the middle one. Okay, that's it for uh, this episode. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will be back in yep, two yep. weeks with a new show. Yep, yep. And yep. until then... Do, 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 do. Slumgullions. We still got some guests on the Slumgullions. We're not showing breasts on the Slumgullions. Should probably fade on the Slumgullions.